0: Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the ecological, economic and energy crises we face today and reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This week's episode is pretty lively. It's with Professor Ugo Bardi, who is a professor in physical chemistry at the University of Florence and also a member of the Club of Rome. For the first half of the episode, Ugo goes through the kind of problems that his research is trying to understand. He discusses energy, he discusses renewable energy resource depletion, how all of this relates to obviously the climate and the future of our economies. But then Hugo takes a turn and starts discussing some of the solutions uh, that people are working on around the world. He reveals some amazing technologies uh, that for one could overturn the agricultural industry. He discusses new kinds of narratives that we could employ to shift our Focus away from competition to collaboration to how do we as a species get through the climate crisis that also helps the other species we share this planet with and helps the planet itself. It was great fun speaking with Hugo. I would have a pen on you because the amount of names and books that he drops that I think we all need to go away and read immediately are endless. And it was uplifting to speak to somebody in this space whose research is confronting really our sort of existential crisis, who is hopeful. And not for no reason. (laughs) We dive right in. So here is Ugo at COP. I was really disappointed that nobody was asking questions like, well, you made these kinds of pledges, uh, five years ago and 10 years ago and 15 years ago, and, uh, nothing's come of them. So how are you going to enforce the commitments being made? How are you going to sanction nations, markets, private companies, if they fail to meet these commitments? Mm So it was just a lot of hot air, in my very unprofessional opinion. Mm, what did okay. you think?
1: I did. I didn't follow so much the the cop this, this year. I I was a little disappointed that uh, we arrived on number twenty sixth,
0: mm. and
1: I'm not sure. I mean, it's just over. Maybe it was different than the earlier ones, um, but. Uh, but really really i don't think so this um i mean you rem- you know probably that uh, albert einstein is said to to, a, to a said once uh, um the, the essence of being fools is to do the same thing over and over again and expecting different results
0: you know i've heard the phrase but i've, uh, I've never applied it to cop that is yeah, that's maybe twi- maybe
1: 26 <laughs> Cops are a little bit too many. Yeah. Anyway, I I don't I don't know. We have, we have to think about that. May, it's not impossible to find agreement. So some some others. I don't know. We should we should still examine this in uh, in um, some detail. But then it's too early now to understand if this in- cup will have any impact on the world.
0: I think as well we need to analyze what the agreements are being made for, because I still don't believe that, uh, most world leaders are willing to make commitments to green the world and green the economy and save the world out of the goodness of their hearts. You know, now it's kind of getting to the stage of like, oh my God, we're going to see system collapse and we're going to see economic collapse. So like, how, how do we avoid that? Um, and if that's the attitude, if it's essentially, how do we save our own skin? And I think we need to be really closely examining these agreements uh, to see what the fine print is and to see who is going to lose because the system that we've built is that somebody always has to lose.
1: Mm, yes, so it is. It is very difficult and I think well, honestly, we are taking the wrong approach because trying to face an enormous problem head on. That is, we are trying to solve it by facing it and try to push like like enormous force because this climate change is something gigantic. It's uh, it's an enormous force that is moving and uh, we don't really know whether it will stop by itself, whether we can stop it somehow, because really something so new for the ecosystem that it has never been experienced. It's uh, it's fantastic because we don't know of any case in the past. Of such a rapid perturbation mm. of the atmospheric composition. It's never happened, it's so fast. But there's one good point though. I don't want to be catastrophistic. A good point is that um the past perturbations, those which led to a climate catastrophe, were less intense. Can you, uh, can you is, give
0: an example? Oh, the,
1: there are several examples, the extinction of the dinosaurs. Everybody okay. knows about yeah. the dinosaurs and everybody knows of course, from a reliable source, which is Hollywood, <laughs> <that> <laughs> the dinosaurs were destroyed by an asteroid, but nobody knows, not even in Hollywood. I think they know many things that we don't know evidently, <laughs> but, um, how exactly did the asteroid, if it did destroy the dinosaurs. It, it um, this is a small detail. Of course, it was spectacular. Big bang, enormous waves and um, heat waves and lightning and thunder and everything. But really the idea is that the asteroid fell, it did a lot of damage, but really what killed the dinosaurs was a runaway greenhouse effect. Uh. That. That's, uh, that's what most geologists nowadays believe, although, according to some, this runaway hmm, greenhouse I think, may have been caused by the asteroid as a, as a re, sort of rebound because the earth sort of rang like a bell. It was hit by the asteroid bang, and it caused exactly on the opposite side of the of the planet a giant volcanic eruption. Mm, I don't say this true; it is an interpretation. It is published. It's does it some logic, but uh, or maybe the volcanic eruption occurred all by itself. Anyway, it's too it to the atmosphere a huge, truly a huge amount of carbon dioxide. Uh, but enormous, we we we're much larger than anything we can think of now, but it took hundreds, probably hundreds of thousands of years, at least tens of thousands of years. Now we sent into the atmosphere, pushed into the atmosphere so much carbon dioxide, but in just few hundred years, two hundred, three hundred years. So it is much faster, but not as big. So we don't know, and that's an interesting point. Whether this will cause a runaway greenhouse effect, nobody can say that it will or it will not.
0: Oh, really? I thought that the consensus was that you know, yeah. You yeah. thought what?
1: What? What was your impression? Um,
0: I thought that the consensus was out that um, the greenhouse gas effect is that's that's what we're facing. We're looking down the barrel of the greenhouse gas effect.
1: Maybe, maybe that's, that's one opinion. It's uh very uh, difficult. It's one of the opinions you read what uh, James Hansen writes. He speaks about the Venus effect. So Venus is some, it's a place where you have uh, something like 500 degrees centigrade on the surface, uh, sulfuric acid in the atmosphere, not a place where it could live, but we don't know whether we could arrive, probably not, to such an extreme condition. But what happen, What can happen is the following. It's two scenarios just to make it easy. We run out of fossil fuels, first possibility. We are so good and so smart that we stop burning fossil fuels, both things at the same time, which means that the perturbation doesn't, doesn't really push us over the edge. Mm And so things um, gradually return in a few hundred years, maybe in a few thousand years, as you know, the, this CO2 that we emitted into the atmosphere, it's about, uh, we take hundreds of thousands of years to be reabsorbed, but Mm -hmm. eventually it will without maybe causing a major disaster. Or maybe we trigger something very bad, like the release of methane hydrates or whatever, it can happen. We don't know really what can happen. We really have no evidence that can tell us what the hell, I'm sorry, is going to happen. In that case, we have a catastrophic in temperature, which brings us back to the conditions which were typical of about 30, 35 million years ago. When we had about a thousand parts per million of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, and right now we have four hundred. Oh, and then what? From t- thirty-five million years ago, we had about eight, ten, twelve degrees uh, temperature higher, which is an interesting, interesting condition. No ice at the poles. And, uh, the sea level, sea level raising of about 70 meters and mm, <laughs> few problems oh,
0: God. that could
1: happen. It, it is possible because it happened. Uh. It, is, it was like this, the earth was like this, um, uh, about 40 million years ago with this, this kind of condition. So it's, it's an interesting story but that, uh
0: Don't you think, um, we're past the point of no return because you said that maybe if we stop using fossil fuels or maybe if um, they run ah, out. That's the uh, duty.
1: That's the duty of the situation. We have no idea that <laughs> we're past the point of no return or not. So I have to tell you personally, I think not, not yet. Um, okay. But it's my opinion. You, if you tell me your opinion, Reikel, is uh, that we did <laughs> uh, your your opinion is just as good as mine because no, 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 impose. no, 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 no.
0: I'm not. No. I'm not. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert. I try not to have opinions on these kinds of things. I just gather as much. You data. know,
1: Reikel. Some studies have shown that the so-called experts are the most often wrong people oh, really? in evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's well known. It's,
0: well. I've, I have, I have had, um, people on the podcast say that, um, renewables, we, we will never be able to m- match our energy production using renewable energy.
1: Oh, that's a, that's another question. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah, oh, so, another so interesting question. Ex- yeah. So their thing is like, we're kind of at the, we're big, be- we're at the beginning of a collapse of some sort. Uh, it's not that the climate is past the point of no return, because ultimately, you know, the earth is going to be fine until the day that the sun blows up or whatever happens. Um, but mankind, you know, this stage of empire, it's done.
1: Humankind, mankind, mm. it's uh, not so good. Right? Okay, humankind. <laughs> humankind. <laughs> now, this is another point, okay, that you move to the question of what do we do, or what mm-hmm. we can do and uh, what we can reasonably do. And Mm -hmm. I think, as I said, the idea of facing the climate change or global warming directly. So we said, we use this um, tactics or strategies, you like, like, like uh, the bull in a, in a a Spanish corrida, you know, (laughs) you go straight Mm -hmm. at the. Uh, the mm, person who eventually will kill you—that's you. The bulls are the not matador. supposed to be the matador, yes. <laughs> the bulls are not supposed to be so smart. Anyway, that, that's not <laughs> a smart way. If I want to, if I were a bull, I'm, I wanted to kill the matador. I would, I would try to surprise him from the back or something like that. Anyway. Um, so I think it's uh, the, the tactics we are using the strategy, if you like, it's not very good because we are asking people to stop doing what they're doing and uh, putting them in very serious trouble. You tell people stop burning fossil fuels, but honestly, it is very difficult for people doing that because uh, our life, my life, your life, everybody, we depend on fossil fuels.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we, we cannot stop. Unless we kill a few billion people, which uh, is not exactly what we want to do, I hope, Mm. Um, because I'm I'm not sure that uh, someone actually has been thinking about that. But of course, they are not saying. Mm. But if you don't want to kill, uh, say, five billion people, which I would personally rather avoid, Then you have no possibility other than the indirect, that is replace fossil fuels with something else, keeping people alive in the transition, mm. which is not so easy, but it is possible. I will tell you that with some colleagues, we made a study on this. We are scientists, this is what we do. We study, we have some ideas, we do models, mathematical models. So. But before making the mathematical model, we, we thought of a name for it. The sour strategy, which means, suppose you are a, you are a peasant, medieval peasant. You work in the fields, so you, you have uh, 12, 12 kids, and, and uh, uh, uh. but you have this problem. Every year you have a harvest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Out of the harvest, you have to keep a sufficient amount of seed that you can use to sow the fields next year. Right. And that was, I, I think, I, I've never been a medieval peasant myself, although I'm sure my ancestors were <laughs> just, just like yours. <laughs> and you had this problem about May or June, you would have run through your storage of, uh, of um, wheat. And then you had some seed left, and you had to choose do I keep it for sowing it or do I eat it? Mm. You see the problem, and mm-hmm. you have to keep enough seed to eat next year. And but if you listen to our economists, modern economists, they say, Well, there's not a problem, the market will provide oh. the seed that you need because <laughs> you. <laughs> because there is a demand that the market mm. will provide a, a supply. Mm. Yeah. Our ancestors must have been smart enough that they survived. If they made a mistake, mm. they were, would not be our ancestors because we would not be here. So this is the problem we have with fossil fuels. We have to keep some of these fossil fuels in order to seed the renewable energy. Mm that we can use to replace fossil fuels. If we don't save a little, not some such little, a, a lot, then we cannot invest enough to have sufficient energy to keep people alive. Right. That's the question. That's the point. That's the fundamental point, which is not really understood because as I said, economists say, well, no, don't, don't worry you, you have the market, the market decides the, the everything whatever costs less we, we use, but then if using this recipe, you would have killed all the medieval peasants in Europe because nobody is, and so, but reasonably people resist that's the, they, they are right in some, within some limits they are right saying, no, but you want to make me suffer because I need most people on this planet are at the survival level. They use little energy in comparison to us Westerners yeah. and, and, um, so it's not easy to go to tell to an Indian peasant or to a, an African peasant say you, you have to save energy. Not easy. Yet, it is uh, one possibility that I think it is feasible. If we explain it, if we frame it the right way, say, okay, no, no, we don't ask you to, to starve. Let's put as much as we can into renewables and then, and then eventually we will do, we will replace, we'll substitute the fossil fuels. Not easy, probably too late because our calculations show that we should invest in renewables about 10 to 20 times more than what ah. we're investing now. No. It's, um, could have been worse.
0: How how do you, how how do you calculate
1: that? Oh, we calculate it. How much energy you have to invest, how much energy the plants produce, how fast you have to go uh, to avoid the mm, the famous uh, Paris agreement, 1.5 degrees. And if you have to do it fast, if you have 200 years, no problem. You can do it easily. If you have uh, 20 years, then it's, uh, it's, uh, you need to do it very fast and then it comes up out very expensive and probably we will not spend this much money. So our models also tell us what happens if we don't spend enough money to go through the transition while keeping everybody alive, because that was a built-in condition in our model. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, No, the models, uh, it doesn't run. If you, if you, if people start dying, the model stops. Right. And uh, I won't tell you what happens if we don't spend enough money.
0: But we're about, we're spending about 10 to 20 times less than we should be at this stage.
1: We will, in a certain sense, those that say the renewable will never be able to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're not completely wrong because unless we are willing to spend much more than what we're willing to spend, if you allow me this, this uh, form of speech, then they won't. Yet, at some moment in the future, the renewables will replace the fossil fuels, they have too. Mm. It is all a question of how fast and uh, how deep is the decline in energy production? Because if we have now nearly 8 billion people on this planet, it is because we are Having a supply in uh, in uh, energy that's sufficient to keep eight billion people alive without that energy, we cannot do that, and that's unfortunately a little problem. Unfortunately, that if we cannot keep people alive, they they die, which is a little bad from my my viewpoint. I don't know. I don't know if everybody agrees on that. But, but.
0: well, it's interesting. There is a lot of discussion about how you know it would it would be better if there were less of yeah, that, humankind. Yeah, that,
1: that, that, uh, that would be, um, less people would make a uh, lower, lower stress on the planetary ecosystem. Yes, the problem is how to get there. And, um, but it's, uh, it, it, it could not, may not be so bad. Look, because we really are on the verge on a few technological revolutions, which are extremely interesting. Oh yeah. I see you are smiling. I see your yeah. face. <laughs> Immediately you, you had the face like, like oh boy everybody dies. I no, no. die, you died. <laughs> no.
0: I'm I'm I, I'm very, very grateful to hear uh people speaking like this. And even do you know what? Like I watched uh Boris Johnson in uh-huh. Rome. Uh, uh-huh. But the the week before COP, he was at the. No, oh, I can't remember. Maybe. But there
1: was something in Rotem. Yeah. Whatever they do, the the reach, the powerful, exactly. the elite, the the powers that be. You know. They had mm-hmm. their
0: meeting. They had their chit chat. But he came on British television, and like you know, I'm like most other Brits, very much not a fan of Bojo, as we call him.
1: Yes, yes, um, I, oh.
0: But he was saying, if we don't act now. We are going to slide back into a, a form of dark ages. And do you know what? I, mm-hmm. like, I took my hat off to him because I, was, I said to myself, I haven't heard a world leader speak. He
1: said so. He said yeah, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's, it's important because it's the truth that we are going to slide we back, go back into
1: that. To the dark ages, right? mm-hmm. which is dangerous if you have power on people's. Uh, then it is very dangerous to have this kind of attitude because, mm, you know, the sto- history what says, but seriously, we are on the edge of big changes. The, the main one is renewable energy. Renewable energy is incredibly efficient, incredibly cheap, incredibly good. It's, uh, we, we, it's a few years, 10 years ago, we could not have suspected that renewable would go so fast down in prices and so fast so high in efficiency it's this is the first advantage right now i have uh, one of my former students is one of the main uh, the most best, best best known people um evaluating the efficiency of renewable energy and he tells me that the efficiency of renewable energy now like photovoltaics for instance is at least five times Higher than that, that of crude oil.
0: Oh wow.
1: That's good. Just in terms of production.
0: Oh wow. And that's
1: uh, but not in England, I'm sorry. <laughs> in Scotland. In Scotland, no way. <laughs> and the uh, second thing we are doing big progress, although not so fast, but still good progress in energy storage. Yeah, that's that's good. You you can see, I'm I'm mainly a technologist for most of my working life, I've been a technologist, then I, I switched it to be a modeler, a modelist, or not a model, bet, never that never. <laughs> uh, but seriously, you can see the good technology when it appears. It works. We have batteries which are way better than anything we had before. And that's also at a reasonably low price. So we have energy, we have energy storage, and we have this incredible possibility of creating food directly out of photovoltaic energy.
0: Directly out of what?
1: A photovoltaic electricity.
0: Creating food.
1: Yeah, we use it to make food. we using bacteria. You never heard that.
0: <laughs> no. oh, it's a nice, li- it's a
1: nice thing to have at moonwalks, okay. uh, but. So far, it's still experimental. I I know, but it seems to work. I, um, and uh, it is very much more efficient than agricultural food production. It takes less space because photovoltaics is so efficient. It's much more efficient than photosynthesis. See. And so you can use the energy produced by photovoltaics to provide energy to bacteria in various forms. You need, you need some chemistry to do that. You, bacteria don't eat electricity, they, they can eat chemicals now. Hydrogen essentially, or CO, they, they can do things with hydrogen. And this is one of the few serious applications of hydrogen. The rest is hype, but then um, you feed the, the bacteria with hydrogen. The hydrogen synthesized proteins. Or carbohydrates, or fat, whatever you like, and then you use a three D, three D manufacturing system. You can manufacture um, a chicken, for instance.
0: Eh? Yes, no. you can. No. Or
1: something that looks like a chicken, not not, not a live chicken. Uh, the the um, a hamburger, if you prefer.
0: You can. Well,
1: I'm sure it would not. I never, I never tasted anything like that. Some people I know did. I say it's, it's nice. Uh, I think you cannot be worse than the McDonalds.
0: Oh my God! You can essentially three D print a fake bacteria chicken.
1: Yeah, transform the bacteria into a chicken, into a um, chicken meat. Not not yeah, a real, not the chicken. Wow! But it seems to be working. For what I can read, this seems to be efficient. It seems to, if it moves on, if we, if it can be industrialized, then it can replace agriculture. We don't need agriculture anymore.
0: I'd be very open to eating bacteria if it meant that those 5 billion Mm -hmm. people didn't have to die. But surely, uh, you know, if we look at the political economy of uh, power, essentially, in the world and interest, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the the people of the agricultural sector are not going to be very happy if their whole uh, mode of making profits is replaced by a funky little bacteria.
1: That's a good point. Yeah, I understand it perfectly, but people don't like to change. Yeah, we make change in general, it's agriculture, uh, farmers will not like, we, why we, we are we out of business so far. It's for business.
0: Us t- I, I had a very interesting conversation with somebody once that said, people don't understand that farmers are the longest term thinkers uh, of the world because they're thinking about could be, could be, could be, yes. generations. So farmers are transitioning. They're trying to find something new because they can see that, you know, meat production is going down. You know, we've hit peak, peak meat, uh, peak everything else. Yeah, um,
1: that you know these things. I yeah, see. Yes, but, yes, 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 You're
0: <laughs> you're
1: a, you a good catastrophist. Welcome to the club.
0: <laughs> I've spoken to too many of your colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, surely there is, you know, the the interests of big business that are, it's going to be most difficult uh, to to convince.
1: That, that, uh, we, we would have to see, but if we, you see, agriculture is a very expensive and inefficient enterprise, you probably know or you, you have read it somewhere that for every calorie, every unit of energy that arrived on a supermarket shelf, more exactly to every calorie of food that you put on your table, uh, you have about nine units of fossil energy Mark, and just yeah. one unit, one unit of solar energy. And uh, this is a very, very big problem because mm. If we, if we have problems with fossil fuels, agriculture is about the most dependent um, sector of the, our economy on, on fossil fuels. We need fossil fuels for for everything, for um, fertilizers, for, for um, insecticides, for tilling the field, for transporting this, for transporting that, for moving things, from for refrigeration, from from packaging and transportation, it's uh, it's extremely expensive. So it is the real tipping point of the system. And agriculture is the most delicate, is the most critical point of the whole system because it takes very little to make agriculture expensive enough that it's not possible anymore to produce as much we are producing. Because we can produce so much, a lot, we can produce a lot, but because we use fossil fuels, you know, the story of the Irish potato famine. I think it's a good, it's an interesting story because what what was the mistake of the Irish, not their mistake, they were pushed to do that big for several historical factors, that they were relying on a single thing, which was potatoes. Now we are relying on a single thing, which is fossil fuels. And you know, it's very dangerous and incidentally, I've been working for a while at the idea of re- of using electric energy to push to um, fuel agriculture with electric energy because electrical energy you can make from renewables. For instance, a few, about 10 years ago, we built with a grant from the European union They financed us to build an electric tractor. Sure, it it works. You can do that. You don't need fossil fuels. You can charge it using photovoltaic panels. So you don't care if the world market of of, of, uh, fossil fuel crashes. You can still use your tractor to move things. around, transporting things. That's fundamental. But, you know, it, it was maybe at... 1% more expensive than a conventional tractor, So nobody wanted it. Yeah. As, as you know, this is a market-based allocation of resources. The market is very efficient, so it always goes for the cheaper without thinking about the
0: future. <laughs> the market doesn't think about the future. Yeah, of course. Tell me, do governments come and approach, you know, academia enough, academics enough for, to, to help figure out this issue, the whole complex issue of, of climate change, for example?
1: Well, sometimes I have the impression that it's too difficult for the, for the, for everybody, even for me, it's so difficult that, that I don't, I really, we don't have the capability to managing such complicated and complex systems. We don't really know what we are doing. Even at the COP26, where you went, I think, I don't know if you had the same impression I had. Hmm. A few years ago, I went, I was working at this tractor, and I went to attend to a conference on food supply. Food supply is such a complicated story. It's just one, one section of the whole thing. You have, I had at least. I don't know if you ever did. The distinct impression that nobody knows what's going on. Yeah, because there's so many factors about the way food is produced, packaged, transported, refrigerated, sold on the market, sent in container ships. Uh, there is politics between in, in involved and every kind of thing. It's it's impossible to manage the centralized level. I think the final error that the people of the COP are are doing is that they're trying to manage a hugely complex system in a centralized manner. Because that's the idea, if you think about that. We go get together in Glasgow, we find an agreement and then we impose it to the whole world. Mm. And I'm afraid that's a little too ambitious, even if you could find an agreement. Are you sure that it is the good thing to do? Do you have sufficient knowledge and trust in your knowledge to think that this is you, a group of people, get together in one place, in one moment in history, and they know what is the good thing for the whole system? Do they? Do you? Do I? I have no idea, honestly. I would like to, I don't know if you know the work of Miss Ostrom, Eleanor Ostrom. Have you ever heard of this lady? No. She was the first, so far the only Nobel prize in economics, woman in economics. And I've been reading her work. She was a great, great lady, a great scientist. She, she studied exactly this problem. How do we manage? a uh, system, an ecosystem, an economic system, uh, the commons, you know what the commons mm-hmm. are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How do we manage the commons? And uh, the history of uh, management tells us that uh, it's uh, nearly impossible. No good stories of centralized management of the commons. You cannot do it. Doesn't work. Almost never. This lady was a very practical person, not a theorist, she went to meet the people who managed, actually did manage systems in a small scale, village level, in a sense, even primitive, if you like, management. I said, okay, look, look, these systems work. Unbelievably. Take people who are not scientists, not politicians, not experts, not mathematicians, not journalists, not put them together. After a while, they find an agreement on how to manage a resource without destroying it. And she has many examples. You can find it in her books, those examples. I can tell you another story. There is a mountain about uh, a hundred kilometers from where I am now, it is called an Italian name. It is called the Amiata. Amiata we used to be a volcano, so you have this plain, a Tuscan plain, and in the middle of the plain there is this vulcan, this cone, huge cone, that, which is forested, all forested.
0: Mm.
1: It is very particular because the rest of the land is cultivated for so grain and the, the other things. But the mountain is all forested. It is managed by the local people. And uh, they managed to manage, if you like, to manage these forests without destroying the forests. How do they, how did they do that? I went there because that's because my son. My son's girlfriend is on there. So I went there a few times and spoke with the people, and the people still use the same methods they used during the Middle Ages. Okay. Well, they developed these methods to manage the forest. They get together and uh, say, You cut so many trees, you cut so many trees. If you cut more trees than you are allocated, then you're a bad man. And we won't, we won't invite you to our celebrations anymore.
0: <laughs> it works. Yeah. I I had um actually an, an exiled Sarawakian activist staying with me uh, uh-huh. this past week over cop and he was uh, talking about the the rainforest in Sarawak and how they manage mm-hmm. that how his Kelantan tribe manage it and essentially um the the fig tree is one of the only trees that produces a uh, food all year round so uh-huh. the the oral tradition is that you tell kids uh you're not allowed to eat uh, shoot monkeys that are on fig trees, uh, because the ghost of the monkey will come and haunt you. Uh, well, I am
1: sure that that's uh, big, be, be careful yeah. because they could reach you even <laughs> in Britain. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so don't shoot the monkeys. And also when everything else is growing, don't pick the, the fig tree. And the idea behind that is that when, when, uh, food resources are scarce because none of the other trees are producing fruit, mm-hmm. um. You leave the monkeys access to their resource so that they can still breed, mm-hmm. so that there can still be a high enough monkey, a big enough monkey mm-hmm. population to eat throughout the rest of the year. Um, and when the rest of the the food is scarce, that's when the people go to the fig trees to get. So like that that was how they managed it. They just understood that like you never okay, you never cut down a fig tree because that is the only one that produces food all year round, and you don't hurt the monkeys on it because they need to be able to go and get food so that we can eat them next week. You know, and oral tradition, ghost stories, and also, I mean, the big one is having enough land to go around, living in small uh, groups.
1: Ah, uh, okay. That's, that's right. So, so you see, I, 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 you, you have it. I see, I think this could be, and I don't, we don't speak about solutions because we don't know what the solution could be, but we can speak about processes, mm. ways of going and, uh, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure, but, uh, but I think this lady had it right and from what I have seen, like, for example, on this mountain where people manage forests reasonably well, I mean, they made mistakes, make mistakes. Also or the monkeys of your, mm-hmm. your, uh, the, uh, the people you mentioned, and uh, I think anyway, I, I, I could tell you the secret. You want to know the secret? Tell me. Secret of survival? And first question: What are you? Me? Yes, yes. What are you? Biologically define yourself.
0: Homo <laughs> <Almost> sapien. <laughs> I feel like it's a trick question. <laughs> mm,
1: well, that's that's uh, okay. Yeah, that's that's the name. <laughs> the, 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 yes, you, it's okay. But to what kind of creature are you?
0: God, sorry, but my <laughs> philosophy degree makes me want to go know, off on a tangent God, here. I, I think.
1: Uh, <laughs> I think, No, I tell you what. Tell me, you are. Yeah. You are a holobiont. I'm a what? (laughs) You are a holobiont.
0: Holobiont. Holobiont. Okay.
1: A whole biological creature. You are a holobiont because you are formed of a large number of creatures which um, collaborate with each other. In order to keep you alive, yeah, okay, See a point you have, um, gut, gut flora, you know, mm-hmm. you have, uh, but not just that, you have uh, bacteria on your skin, viruses everywhere, you have all sorts of hosts in your body. Did you know that? You look, you look strange. Yeah, that's a no, you you know, that. we're ecosystems,
0: right? Each individual is an ecosystem. You
1: are, you are an ecosystem and you're part of a larger ecosystem, Mm -hmm. which is part of an even larger ecosystem. And uh, that's a question of fractal system, fractal, you know, what? what is a fractal?
0: Uh, I have a best friend who was obsessed with fractals for about a month. More, so. more or but but do explain it for people that haven't heard.
1: Multiscale, multiscale systems, multi-scale systems. You know what is the greatest holobiont no. in the system? What, the earth? It's the, le- the great lady, Gaia. Gaia. She is the greatest holobiont of the system. But then down, you go down, 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 up to you, but you have holobiont this side and... The, even bacteria. Now, bacteria are not holobions, but a lot of unicellular creatures are holobionts. The beauty of the concept of holobion, of holobion, holobion was, was proposed by some German in the 1930s, but then it, she was Lynn Margul, Margulis. You know Lynn Margulis? No. Lynn Margulis was a biologist, an American biologist, one of the mm, great minds of the 20th century, a co-creator of the concept of Gaia. And the creator of the concept of symbiogenesis. Okay. I was, it's, you enjoy this, this talk. Symbiogenesis means that creatures evolve by symbiosis, not by the Darwinian evolution idea of the survival of the fittest.
0: Oh, love it. Yes.
1: You love with Darwin, I love you? Margulis. Margulis, Margulis. Love yeah. Margulis, yeah. yes. Reader Boots is evolution is collaboration. That's a contribution to science. And the beauty of this is that you can move this idea also to social sciences because you have social lobbyists. The community of woodcutters of the Ameata mountains in Toscana is a whole biot of woodcutters who collaborate with each other and control and connect with each other in such a way to create a larger holobiont, which is form of the forest and the woodcutters. And yeah. this is an emergent phenomenon of the ecosphere, which is if it is left to itself, creates everything, creates the ecosystem, creates the goddess Gaia. Um, so I think my honest, my personal opinion, and then you're, you're going to close this, this soon. Thank you, professor. But it's okay. Listen, I know enough, but let's stop now because,
0: <laughs> no. And I could, um, I could talk about this all day. I mean, no,
1: it's, it's it's interesting. No, seriously, I'm, I'm serious. This is uh, so many things I've been discovering mm. The Te- new technologies, but also new discoveries.
0: For me, as, as a journalist and as a, as a writer, you know, the, the power of storytelling is something that, you know, can massively move uh, humankind along, especially in times yes. of crisis and times of need. Um, and so, you know, redefining evolution as a form of collaboration, like ima- imagine if that was the position that we were coming from. Not Darwin, Mm. not competition, but collaboration. We probably would have just had COP 6, not 26, and we would have figured it out.
1: That's right. The beauty of the whole Bayonne idea, which is perfectly compatible with Ostrom's ideas, is that the the way to manage a complex system is not centralized control, but issues control among agents. who who are at the same hierarchical level, the the whole biont, maybe a little hierarchical, yes, but not so much because uh, if, uh, if there is a central control normally destroys everything, but if the agents, the woodcutters, for instance, they are all at the same level, some families, they're not single woodcutters, they're families actually, some families richer than others some, sometimes they forward to pull what you want, but oh, every family, it's all less at the same level. Every family has the right to speak about and to propose about how many trees should be cut. Then it was.
0: Mm. But how do, you, because, how do you manage that on a globalized level though?
1: Ah, that's a good point. Good question. I, I leave it to you <laughs> as an exercise, you, you can make your PhD on that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> This was absolutely fascinating. No, You've no, given I, me so much I, to think about.
1: I have more things to tell you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah. couple, a couple more things oh, yeah. that would blow your mind up. Come on then. You know what is an atmospheric river? <laughs>
0: no, tell
1: me. No, you don't know what no. is an atmospheric <laughs> river. It's the fundamental element of control of the ecosystem. Recent discovery. Okay. Because the atmospheric river, is what makes Earth live. How do you think? You have four. you can have forests in Siberia. Where do they get the water? Through an atmospheric river. Uh, atmospheric river carries water all the way from the North Sea okay. to Siberia, all the way to China. Okay. And you know the mechanism, how it works. Tell me. It works by means of the biotic pump, which is another holobiont at the forest level. The biome formed of trees. The beauty of the story is that every tree, careful about that, pumps water out of the ground. Yeah. Okay. But the tree is an extremely inefficient pumping pump. Extremely inefficient. 95%, more or less, of the water it pumps is wasted. Okay. It's wasted, evaporates over the canopy of Mm of the tree forms the clouds mm-hmm. on top of the tree. These clouds have two aspects. One is they cool the planet. Mm-hmm. This uh, is something that, uh, that the climate scientists haven't discovered yet, but it's a fundamental aspect. A lot of the temperature of the planet is determined by the clouds produced by trees, by this mechanism. And also since uh, the condensation reduces the pressure. It forms a not a vacuum, but it reduces a pressure difference, which pumps water out of the sea from thousands of kilometers away. Good God! And that's one atmospheric river. While there's several atmospheric rivers that, for instance, keep the Amazon's green. How do you think you can have water in the center, the middle of the of South America? because water is transported from the ocean by the biotic pump and cooling the planet in the, in the process. Wow. And you see the great holobiont trees are not doing this out of altruism. Mm. They don't care about the other trees, but the mechanism is such that the forest, provides its own resources for survival.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this collaboration of necessity.
1: Yeah. And uh, and your next person you should interview yeah. will be the discoverer of this effect. This lady is called Anastasia Makaryeva. She's Russian. She's a great lady and I'm sure you are interested to interview her.
0: Yes, please. She would be
1: happy to, to speak to you. Eh? I know
0: her. Oh, fantastic. You you okay? I'm, 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 I'm wired now. I've received so much interesting information and I want to put it all out into the world.
1: There is, there there is much more, but I won't tell you anything anymore. Uh Next interview, another time. There is more.
0: Let's do a follow-up. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Bardi, thank you so, so much for coming on the show and for, and just, yeah, for giving us all this information.
1: And thank you for, for your interest.
0: I'm, I think we're all fascinated. I think there's a, there's a massive disconnect between the kind of information that is available from experts such as yourself and the other, the information that's getting published.
1: It takes time. It takes time. Yeah. These ideas, ideas go through the, the human mind sphere, but they go, they take some time, you will see this idea also because of people like you who are receptive to, to your ideas and scientists are um, a little bit, um, not so, so. Easy to convince of new
0: ideas.
1: (laughs) So it takes a little work.
0: So thank you. Thank you very, very much. If you want to learn more about Hugo and his work, I've put links to his website and his Club of Rome profile over at planetcritical.com, where you can also choose a paid subscription to support this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next week.